You're listening to the Ikra Book Festival 2020, brought to you by The Ark, Radio Ramadan 365, Al Khair, Human Relief Foundation, and Allison Street Cleaners. Allison Street Cleaners, is your laundry piling up? Are you too tired or busy to get it done? Come to Allison Street Cleaners, a fast and friendly laundrette. Services include dry cleaning, ironing, shirt service, and you can now also hire the rug doctor, making sure all your cleaning needs are fulfilled. Presenting you with an exclusive Ramadan special to Radio Ramadan listeners. £2 off every £10 spent until the 15th of June. Don't miss out. Visit us at 110 Allison Street, Glasgow, g 428 N or call 0141-423-3958 Alison Street Cleaners Clean water isn't a luxury It's the moral right of everyone Yet 785 million people live without it And the consequences are dramatic With diseases from dirty water Killing more people each year Than all forms of violence Including war It's why Human Relief Foundation bring clean water into the heart of communities. But they need your support to do more. Visit hrf.org.uk We believe that every child deserves a good education. This is the best way to ensure that they can achieve their full potential and escape a life of poverty for themselves and their families. All that these children want is a chance to learn and fulfill their dreams. With your donations, Al Khair Foundation helps thousands of children gain a quality education. Please support us so that we can continue to help some of the poorest children across the world. To learn more, please visit our Glasgow branch at 441A Victoria Road, Glasgow, G428RW or call on 0141-423-5747 or visit our website at alkhair.org. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Ikra Book Festival. You're with myself, Maria Sharif, and I will be hosting the next three sessions. Uh, Joanna, you entered into Islam in the late 90s and you have a keen interest in languages. Yes, I have actually, yeah. Um, I haven't learned too many of them. Um, but yeah, I have a keen interest in, in languages. Um, I'm hoping to start learning Gaelic at some point. Let's see. <laughs> okay, Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Medina, are you there? Hi, I'm here. Alaikum <laughs> salam, how are you? I'm good, yeah, I'm good, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, you are actually, um, initially I thought that you were um, a convert to Islam, but you were actually born into into Islam. Yeah, this is what's a, it's a slightly confusing situation for a lot of people because they're not, often not used to seeing white Muslims, even though there are a number of people who are historically, you know, um, for example, people from Bosnia, parts of um, parts of Russia also, Tartar Muslims, you could call white, they look very, you know, light-skinned. Uh, I've heard Turks describe themselves as white also, um, uh, Circassians, people, people that we actually, this is a funny a funny history it was very fascinating to listen to Diana talk about the histories of of words I'm a bit of an etymology nerd and to know that the Mm -hmm. word Saracen itself is the kind of corruption of a an Arabic word for thieves I mean that's just it's not just amazing that's just classic um but yeah um 
the word Caucasian, which we have come to think of as meaning a, a description of white people, actually refers to people of the, Caucas the Caucasus, mm -hmm. part of southern Russia, on the Black Sea, kind of facing Turkey, northern Turkey. And they were, it refers to the Circassians, who were actually Muslim, historically Muslim, and were persecuted by the Tsarists in uh, Russia. So it's one of the one of the histories that I draw into this into this story. But um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of a, as a modern phenomenon, I mean, I think there have been um, more conversions in the last sort of 20, 30, 40 years. My parents converted in the early 70s. So mm -hmm. I, I think my dad actually converted in 1970, which would be 50 years ago, which is quite a, I think that's kind of quite a milestone somehow. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just plunge in and read a bit from the prologue and you'll have an idea of what this book is about. This is... Um, this, I don't know if you can see it very well there. It's called The Invisible Muslim, which is a bit of a playful uh, term. Obviously, I'm not actually invisible. <laughs> um, I'm not pretending to be, but it's a play on um, talking about how people expect you to be based on how you look. And so I think that's something that comes up for a lot of, well, for a lot of people generally, that can, you know, that's it's a sort of um, judging a book by its cover phenomenon, mm. which... I'm sure everyone has come across at some point or another, but um, we have a it's lot of like expectations. Being in the closet, isn't it? It's a, like being in the, it's a little bit like being in the closet. I, I sometimes liken it to... Right, right, exactly. And, and it has its its benefits because, of course, being a Muslim in, in any wow. kind of context where um, there is Islamophobia, it's a very challenging experience. And if you are able to... Not if you take your hijab off and you can just look like, you know, anyone else, um, there is obviously some kind of... Um, ease that comes with that but then it's also um it places you in a sort of moral dilemma like I mean do I want to be invisible do I want my my Islam to be invisible so that was the the reason behind that um and also it's just kind of funny you know like the invisible man I find it funny I don't know if anyone else finds it funny okay so I'm going to read I'm going to kind of skip through the the prologue so it gives you a bit of a background to what what I was um to to writing this book I'm afraid I can't let you into the United Kingdom if you've overstayed your visa in Spain. How do we know you won't overstay here? For one long hypnotic moment, I was standing in Stansted Airport, a few miles away from the village where I lived out my teenage years, my feet stuck to the ground with red tape. I was holding my recently renewed American passport, minus the indefinite leave to remain stamp that I had flippantly thought would be easy to recuperate. Right now, this passport felt like a foreign appendage or a phantom limb. It seemed I had been officially transformed into the outsider that, with a touch of smugness, I always felt I was. I had been living in Spain for six years by then, having moved there with the naive idea that a piffling thing like residency would be easily obtained. I've learned enough about performing to be able to stride through airports with the breezy air of a Scandinavian on her way to any ordinary European destination, say, an annual reindeer hustling event. But Spanish immigration prohibits American nationals from spending more than three months at a time in Spain. And getting residency there as an American has a long list of absurd requirements, including proof of United States residency, social security and health insurance, as well as a doctor's letter declaring you free from STDs, HIV, tuberculosis, yellow fever, typhoid, and, I kid you not, the plague. Every time I entered Spain, I would gird myself up with plenty of silent Quranic invocations to stave off the growing anxiety. 
but a combination of Spanish bureaucratic incompetence and the assumption that a white blonde woman couldn't possibly be an illegal immigrant meant that nobody ever checked the dates on my stamps. I don't typically wear hijab, especially not going through airport security. I look like any other acceptably Caucasian tourist. <clears throat> I figured on the one hand that this was a test of faith. On the other, it was a reminder of the fact that an African, Arab, South American or Asian woman would not be able to blag their way through border control as I so easily did. To non-EU nationals who have entered Spain without papers or asylum seekers and refugees who have crossed borders and even the Mediterranean Sea to enter Europe without a home to return to or any guarantee of surviving the crossing, it's clear that our situations are worlds apart. For a privileged person like me, having no official recognition of home might seem like a mere formality. But for many others, it is visceral. It can make you dodge the public gaze, haunting quiet spots where you won't be seen or staying at home and reading the news. The white gleam of a police car sends a bolt of electricity through your nervous system. You need to work, so end up ac accepting poor conditions, meager pay and zero healthcare in order to avoid raising red flags. Fast forwarding back to Stansted, I drew out my father's birth certificate, which I had brought with me as proof of British descent, so I could apply for citizenship of the UK. It's handy to be able to hide or play the British card as needed, the way a 10 year old is only 10 when it's time to help out with housework and already 10 when there's a chance of getting grown up privileges. There was an added irony. The border guard facing me down was a British Asian woman wearing a hijab. If she had guessed my religion from my lengthy Arabic name, she didn't show it. I'm Muslim too, I wanted to tell her, eager to reach out to a sister before weakly remembering that it was irrelevant to the situation. Drawing up every last ounce of confidence, I gave her a rapid fire version of the story of my problematic nomenclature. Her eyes started to boggle, her head visibly to swim. Eventually she gave me the benefit of the doubt, telling me with a hint of reproach to solve the problem forthwith. It would take innumerable phone calls with passport advisors who all offered conflicting advice. You cannot become British. You are already British. A name change by deed poll to correct the spelling mistake on my Spanish birth certificate that had set this whole nightmare in motion and several months of wrangling with the passport office for me to finally secure that magical red book. By that time, I had realized I was six, week preg six weeks pregnant. My husband, Ali, who's from Iran, could not get a visa to the UK to visit me. Here again was the barbed wire fence that shuts out certain nationalities, where my whiteness has consistently earned me the benefit of the doubt. Two days after officially becoming British, I was on a plane back home to Spain. <laughs> so that's a very um, brief uh, introduction to a few. It's, it's very minor. And to, honestly, to sit down and, and to write about this, it makes me sort of feel like this is laughable. These problems are so sort of negligible compared to how, mm. it's, how many issues people I know have gone through, you know, spending decades living um, illegally. Yeah. You know, who who could call a human being illegal? I, I find that very difficult to believe. But mm -hmm. but without papers and and um, yeah, for me, it, it just means that it, there's a kind of a burden of guilt there that um, I have uh, an inherited privilege there that is um, I can't escape it. I can't get rid of it. I can't change the color of my skin. I can't change my ethnicity. But I think that it's not what's called for is not developing self-hate about it because it's not something that you can 
you can choose or change, but um, it is about learning about um, the origins of, of this privilege and why it is accorded to certain people and becoming aware of it. And once you become aware of it, then hopefully, inshallah, you start recognizing situations where you can opt out of it or you can, um, you can call it out or just see what you can do with it. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> It, 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 we, we do have minor grievances, don't we? That's I, I, I suppose, like 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 you said, as compared to you know as compared to other people, the the troubles that we as um, sort of white Muslims encounter within the community are, are really quite trivial. I mean, at the time, it might seem you know massive, you know, the fact um, that you maybe have to work a little bit harder um, to convince people acceptance to be mm. to be accepted. I, I mean, for example, um, um, a lot of Con, you know, white converts from, um, you know, from, I would say from white backgrounds, um, perhaps less so Afro-Caribbean backgrounds, but I, I don't know, I think white, you know, maybe people from Afro-Caribbean convert backgrounds, they have their own mm. issues. They're often not accepted by uh, non-black Muslims uh, or non-black Muslims of colour um, sometimes can yeah. not realise that there are such things as black Muslims. So that is a whole other question, exactly. Yes, and the colorism, yeah, the colorism within the within the community. Um, I found the yeah the top the the chapter on Iran very interesting, <laughs> um, particularly um, you know the um, the way in which you'd spoken you know spoken quite quite at length about um, eyebrows and how important um, eyebrows are in in Iranian culture. I mean, um, threading as um, a kind of a type of sort of beauty beauty therapy a, a type of um i don't know um cosmetic intervention yeah intervention yes that's the word i was looking for um yeah um it's it's quite a recent sort of development here mm. but it's um very it seems, seems to be sort of eye, eyebrows seem to be sort of very rooted in the persian culture they're very significant it's it's yeah yeah actually, I, was, I was listening to a song recently my, my husband put on a song and I just picked up one of the words I don't know very much Persian but the word was abru and abru. I was like there's yeah. a song is about eyebrows it's a song mm. about eyebrows it's like a kind of ode to someone's eyebrows so um, I'm just going to respond to some of these uh, chat questions um mm -hmm. What led you to write the book? So I wasn't intending to sit down and write this book at all, but um, I had been doing a few uh, articles, pieces for Critical Muslim, which is published by Hearst. It's a bi-monthly journal. And very interesting. I urge you to have a look at it. Um, and the deputy editor, Samia Rahman, she suggested, she said, I love the way you write and you've got a very kind of unusual outlook because of your experiences. Why don't you write a book about your about your life as a as a white Muslim? And Hearst would be interested because they they tend to focus on these kinds of, of stories. Also, Die in the Dark's book was published by Hearst. They're a really interesting publisher. And initially, I just cringed really badly because I thought I can't write a book about me and my whiteness. That sounds really stupid, you know. Like this is what white people have been doing for centuries, making everything about themselves. Like I don't want to fall into that trap again. Um, but then. I sort of came to realize that actually, first of all, I had a lot of a lot of things to say about this topic because <laughs> it's literally the, the story of my life. 
I realized also that white privilege had not been highlighted um, in a very public way about uh, within the Muslim community and how specifically white Muslims can, on the one hand, feel very alienated and really struggle to feel that they belong and, and kind of own that identity as a Muslim and sort of be really challenged, sort of like on this seesaw all the time of like wanting to feel authentic and then wanting to be a part of communities. And, and of course that means adopting certain cultural aspects, you know, um, but also, again, you don't want to fall into cultural appropriation either. So it's like this kind of tension. There's a sort of a fundamental tension there. Um, so eventually I started thinking, ah, oh, you know, I could, I could write this if I frame it as a travelogue and then I can do one chapter on this area that I lived in and I can do another chapter on this area because I'd also in parallel been writing, uh, I wrote a travel guide to Islamic Spain. So interesting also that Diana Dark brought up the Mesquita de Cordoba. When you start looking at the history of people, particularly any area that has historically had lots of peoples living in it and moving through, and Iberian Peninsula is one perfect example of that. It's had the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Visigoths. It's had people from just in the Muslim period in Al-Andalus, there were um, Syrians, of course, there were um, Moroccans. So they were Amazigh. A lot of them were Amazigh, also alternative known as, as Berbers. There were Yemenis. There were Persians. There were people from all over. And among the Muslims, the majority of them were actually descendants of converts. So culturally, they were very heavily influenced, a little bit like the British, um, were in how they were influenced by the Normans. And so we adopted certain kind of cultural mm -hmm. um, things like the fork. You know, before that, people ate with their hands, but the Normans ate with a fork because it was more dainty and delicate and they didn't want to get their dirty hands on their food. <laughs> so that's how we, we got, we adapted, we adopted the fork. And so many other sort of things. And, and the Ottomans also were very culturally um, powerful for a period of time and influential. The French in the 1700s were very interested in, you know, they, they were Turkophiles. Um, so, yeah, of course. It's very were... interesting what you, what you mentioned in the book about, um, about Andalusia yeah. and about how, how much of Andalusian popular culture as you know, as practiced by um, by, by everyone, whether they whether they be Muslim, Christian, or mm. you know, or whatever, um, has been sort of so um, so 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 heavily influenced by the um, um, previous by the Muslims, occupations yeah. and you know, mm. by, by by the Muslims in. Mm. Um, yeah. but, but it's it's not accepted at all. It's very much whitewashed. It's like the these. Uh, they were they're all called Arabs indiscriminately oh. and that period uh, of Al-Andalus is is routinely described as the dominación árabe the Arab domination as if they mm -hmm. were all Arabs first of all which also denies the the sort of cultural and genetic re um, relationship of all the people of the Mediterranean basin because you know if you go to Lebanon you'll see people who you, you think that they could be Italian you know you go to Tunisia you go to Egypt you go to Morocco you go to Sicily Sicily was also um you know, ruled by Muslims and, and inhabited Muslims yeah. for a period of time. I met a woman from the south of Italy and I could have sworn she was Egyptian. And I said to her, I'm really sorry, you know, I, this is a really awkward question to ask, but where are you from? Because <laughs> I, I came to come to realize that that's not a, not a nice question to ask people because it's it's othering. But she said, you know, don't worry about it. Everybody asks me because she was actually a convert herself. She was wearing hijab, but she was speaking Italian and she gave her name as Michaela. And I said, this is oh. Thing. So she looks like she could be from North Africa, but she has a Christian name. And so she just gave me the story that, you know, she's from Italy. She became Muslim, but her mother's family is from the south of Italy. And she says, we're all Arab there. That's how she described it. So yes, I've had that before. 
we have this kind of situation that this is like a kind of a melting pot. It's almost physically like a cauldron, you know, all the people around the edge is like a cauldron. But then in Spain, particularly, in order to justify the Inquisition, not before the Inquisition, there was um, the recapture of land by Christian forces, which was later, hundreds of years later, um, marketed as the Reconquista, the Reconquest, even though logically it's not a Reconquest because it wasn't the Visigoths who were reconquering the land that they had lost. Politically, it was being run by the Visigoths, who at that time were very divided and very weak. And so the uh, Tariq ibn Ziyad, who first made that crossing and, and sort of conquered Spain with a very small group of, of mercenaries, um, he was really kind of more of an opportunist. He, he sort of saw a ch an opportunity there for, you know, a crumbling power structure, and he, he sort of just jumped at it. Um, but where was I? Yeah, so later on, it was sort of packaged as a reconquista in order to just, and it's still to this day is described as that. And now there is a right-wing um, political, uh, political party called Vox, and um, they use this rhetoric of the Reconquista to talk about reclaiming Spain from the immigrants. All right. Yeah. Mm. I suppose it's rather like George Bush. You know, I think he, he used the term uh, crusades. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, at one point. So, yeah, there are parallels there with uh, his, his sort of right-wing rhetoric. Yeah, completely, completely. And, and yeah, I mean, we can see it all over. Do you feel that, I'm sorry, just reading some more of these chats, do you feel a greater connection to some of the British Muslims of history, like Quilliam, who you wrote about in the book? Um, it's really fascinating to read that there was a member of the House of Lords who became Muslim. There was um, there were all kinds of uh, British and Anglo-American people who became Muslim. And Scotswoman, of course, um, what was her name? <laughs> ah, Evelyn Cobble. Yes, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's fascinating to see these people who who have embraced Islam, but I also don't want to over romanticize it, you know, because it's it can turn into another kind of exoticization where you kind of go, oh, this is new, this is curious, uh, this is fascinating, and then you sort of like zone in on this one group of people who, yeah, their stories are really interesting, and also the stories of the generation of converts around the time that my parents became Muslim. I mean, that includes some very famous Muslims like uh, uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah. There were some very notable people who became us in that period. And that was a really fascinating story as well. Um, but I also don't want to place too much emphasis on it because I don't want to fall into the trap of seeing whiteness as being inherently interesting or important. And that's where I think, I, I hope that I've kind of... Um, honed in on that in this book because on the one hand it is interesting of course it's fascinating and I do feel some kind of pride in the fact that they you know there was a mosque built in Woking in the 1880s you know and there were people who were sort of making hajj like a hundred years ago and you know it's it is extraordinary and it is sort of I do sort of see myself in them in some ways and they did also try and bridge these um, cultures and these identities. You know, people like Martin Lings, for example, who I saw speak actually at SOAS before he died. He was very, very old. And he was still a very venerable English man. You know, he spoke in this very sort of clipped English accent. And the way, when you read his work, it's very scholarly, scholarly it's very erudite. Mm -hmm. But he also felt that he belonged and it was, uh, it made perfect sense for him to be a Muslim also. So it, it's- There's no contradiction. There's yeah, no, in a I, way, I, there I, isn't a contradiction. That's what's so kind of 
but you have to really sit down and 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 observe that and sit with that for a while to be able to realize that we are not naturally divided into all of these segments it's like mm. if we're part of a circle we're not just this little fragment over here this uh what, what do you call that um a wedge you know we're actually all just part of this circle and we share so much it's like a kind of a venn diagram of all these overlapping circles you know um and some of those circles are very very big you know fundamentally we share our humanity we share living on planet earth which you'd think would make us more inclined to getting together to help the earth <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah mm. islamically there are a lot of teachings on um, being um um you know taking care of the earth exactly with the khulafa you know, ourselves as restaurants on on earth exactly but, um, exactly yeah. mm. And Maizun also commented, um, I don't think you can trivialize the experience. It seems that you need to be constantly justifying your existence within multiple communities. It must get exhausting. I think it definitely does get exhausting. And what I've noticed is that uh, at times you can see white Muslims kind of form little sort of circles, which is understandable. I mean, I get that. Um, But it can end up becoming a bit exclusive or not technically exclusive, but it can just be comfortable, you know. It's like, oh, it's comfortable to hang out, sorry, <laughs> comfortable to hang out with people who are similar to myself. And and I feel like that's a, also a very, it's a very natural human tendency. You know, it's easier to be around people who speak your language, who share certain cultural norms mm. with you, you know. But it, but it is really valuable, I think, to consciously um, try and uh, transcend those apparent boundaries and because once you do you start realizing oh, I actually have quite a lot of a lot in common and I can get along with people even not speaking the same language as them that's really extraordinary you know I had a very interesting experience in uh, in Medina Medina to Munawara um, when I was on Umrah I was about 18 and I had lots of layers on and the women we went to the road that we were going to go and actually visit the tomb of the prophet mm-hmm. and i had all these layers on and i suddenly started getting really kind of overheated and kind of a bit almost like a panic attack because the people kind of really crowd around and so i kind of had to back off and sit at a pillar and this like old pakistani woman came up and she just started putting zamzam water on my face and making dua for me and praying for me. And, you know, she, I don't think she spoke English. She was just speaking to me in Urdu. But it was such a sweet gesture that's really stayed with me for a very long time, you know, that kind of gesture of kindness. That's mm. universal. That's really universal. Um, we have a question that um, that is that you're talking about this um, feeling of almost reluctantly accepting the situation that you're in which has been blessed by you know to you by Allah at the end of the day but um do you think that writing the book was almost like your process of accepting the station that you've been blessed yeah I definitely think so I mean in the end I think it was about five years that I was kind of wrestling with this idea of whether to write this book or not because I had a lot of resistance to it and then I realized actually the resistance was something that I needed to pay attention to, you know, how you have like a kind of a lower self that's holding you back in many ways, you know, you have self-sabotaging sort of techniques that people sort of stop themselves from growing. And I realized that actually I really needed to sit with this and think it through and feel it through because it's a very uncomfortable thing for why people have not been taught to think about themselves as racial at all. Like we're not taught about 
critical race theory. We're not talk about we're not taught about colonialism. We're not taught about about white supremacy, except if you decide to go into that and read up on it yourself, you know. So people kind of fall into the assumption that it's somehow normative and that, you know, race race is something that brown people have to worry about and black people have to worry about and we don't really have to think about it at all. Actually, I think it's the complete opposite. Really, it needs to be white people who are more conscious of it. We have to be deliberately conscious of it. And being Muslim, it sort of, it gives you a bit of a leg up in that sense. I mean, it can be a double-edged sword, but if if you're Muslim, then it's almost guaranteed that you're going to be coming into contact with people of probably a very varied um, ethnic backgrounds and cultural backgrounds because Islam, the world of Islam, is very diverse. Mm-hmm. And if you live, yeah, um, sorry, well, one, thing I, one thing I noticed is that sometimes I um, I operate within two different spheres. So sometimes I'll be outside and um, I will encounter. You know, I will sometimes. Um, it's very easy you know it's it's a privilege we have sometimes I will forget you know you know my my whiteness my um ethnic ethnic heritage and um it was um about a month month back um I um, had some new neighbors moved in uh from Cote d'Ivoire so of course I just went up to them and I just said oh where are you from and of course they were quite taken aback because I think they were expecting I was going to launch into some sort of irate you know, going back to where they come from and all the rest of it. And I just, I realised that what, what had actually happened was I was still kind of in mosque or Amma mode at that point. And um, yeah, you know, and it's quite, it's sort of perfectly acceptable amongst Muslims um, mm. to ask, where are you from? I mean, you, you know, it's just, it, it feels almost natural. Mm-hmm. Not not because you wish to judge that person or put them in you know, or pigeon. Because you're curious. It's, it's interesting. It, you know, your ethnicity does shape who you who you are as mm. a person. It affects your experience certainly because people will treat you differently depending yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it can go both ways as well. I mean, going to I was I lived in East Africa for most of a year. And um, so this is what this, the chapter called Mzungu is about. Mzungu is a Swahili word meaning a Westerner. But I mean, a black person who's been raised in the West and goes to East Africa could still be described as Mzungu because it's more of a cultural thing. It's like a mindset or a lifestyle. Because um, Mzungu, yeah. Mweupe means white, as a white person. But Mzungu is, it's related to the verb for to, to turn around. And so some people theorize that it's to do with um, either because white people arrived and they just traveled around a lot. They didn't just settle. They wanted to kind of conquer this mountain and travel all these areas and say that they'd reached the source of the Nile and things like this. And it could also be related to dizziness because, you know, the sort of proverbial um, mad dogs and Englishmen who stayed out in the midnight sun, it's sort of ended up like this. <laughs> and so they kind of had like a slightly sort of, um, they appeared to be quite dizzy in comparison Anyway, so to be white in Africa is very different to be black in in the UK. I would imagine. I mean, I'm not. I can't speak on behalf of black people, but um, I was um, viewed as a wealthy person, you know. And as and it's true, even though I went as a student, I had to pay five hundred pounds for an, uh, an airfare, and I had a passport that allowed me to enter as a tourist. You know, all these different sort of stages that meant that my whiteness was associated with wealth and privilege. And so I would be accepted in certain circles or, or given kind of a leeway, even in living in Zanzibar, which is quite a conservative Muslim culture. Um, the second time I was living there, uh, 
I was um, I was there as part of my year abroad uh, for university. So we were we were a number of um, students there. The others were all white non-Muslims, and so we kind of hung out, you know, often with other expats, and you know, it just meant that um, if I was to go to a full moon party on a beach, for example, I was allowed to do that, even though people knew that I was Muslim. Whereas a local Muslim woman would probably not have been allowed to do that. So then there's also a kind of a conflict there. Yeah. Sorry, there's lots more chat. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a few more questions here. And one that intrigued me, do you think that actually it's really important that you shared your message? Because um, there is the, the case where, you know, somebody's um, of a white background and they've converted to Islam and they're having to deal with a lot of issues that come up with people that have been born and raised as Muslims. Mm -hmm. But then also the, this uh, reconciliation for people that are, are like yourselves, that have parents that have converted and their generations are carrying on, that mm -hmm. they need their, their sort of voice heard. Mm -hmm. You know, personally, I have a lot of friends that have, um, that are of, um, that their children are of mixed race. And sometimes it's almost seen as if, um, it's Muslim versus being white mm. and those things are confused. Is that something that you touched mm. on in your book? Yeah, I did talk a lot about this because there's just this fundamental feeling of like sitting on the fence that, you know, people will either accept you one way or they'll accept the other way. But then there's always half of you that's on the other side kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I think reconciliation is a very good word that you use there because ultimately if you, what I found is that being around other Muslims yeah, of course, you're going to have kind of frictions over certain kind of cultural disagreements or even doctrinal disagreements, you know, maybe like I'm Sunni, I'm married to a Shi'i, for example, we have certain uh, differences of opinion on certain things, but we're still able to be married. And, and that's been a huge lesson for me to sort of think that even sects, you know, different sects, you, you still have something very, very valuable in common. It's like you're you're all in the same kind of circle, but you're just maybe over in this sort of area or over in that area. And that's actually fine. That's really important because that's what diversity, that's the value of diversity is that you have, um, you have that space. You have space to sort of be who you are and find your own way and be, to find that authenticity. I think that is the thing that um, I've noticed that white Muslims seem to struggle the most with, particularly the children of converts, because if you convert yourself, it's because, you know, as an adult, you've gone through an, ex you know, a sort of a trajectory, maybe you've traveled, you've met people, you've come into contact with Islam in your own kind of way. Sometimes people become Muslim because they've grown up in an area with lots of Muslims. And so a lot of their friends are Muslims. And I know yeah. people from Woking, for example, they went to school, all their friends were Muslims. Wow. Yeah, there's some really interesting, it, Conversion stories are always really interesting to me because it's just beautiful to see how varied they are. Um, but if you're the child of converts, you don't have that to look back on. You can't sort of say, oh, well, I had my wild years and then I sort of sorted myself out, you know. <laughs> so it, it was quite interesting, actually. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it was quite it was quite interesting in the book where you talked about your um, childhood and about your, you know, your, your school years. And, um, yeah, just the fact that um, you you know we're able to sort of pass on, on many occasions you know it, it kind of relates in a way to what you were talking about in um during your time in Tan Tanzania mm. with uh, kind of I don't know do they have full moon parties on the beach in Tanzania? yeah of course so well, well for, for yeah, tourists. 
the I guys do. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was just a Thai thing. But yeah, you were talking about, you know, being able to sort of move effortlessly, you know, in these different, you know, in, in, in these sort of different spheres. Mm. And yeah, it's, I suppose it's, you know, and then a little bit later in the book, um, you were talk, you were talking about how, yes, you can move effortlessly, but you cannot like truly be yourself in either one um, of them. Mm. In in either in either group, actually, in many ways, and that's mm. that, I mean that's something I can you know really relate to. It's mm. like you know you don't want to sort of truly let go in Muslim you know in Muslim circles, tradition traditional Muslim circles, for fear that um, you're um, judged to be you know, a heretic. Um, you, and I, th- I think white, I, I think that's, uh, that's one area in which a white convert or a white Muslim, I'm not quite sure what sort of terminology <laughs> um, to, to use is more like, I think it's probably more likely to be viewed with, um, with suspicion than, you know, maybe somebody from like a South Asian Muslim background who's sort of questioning aspects of their I think it can go both ways. Sometimes people, a white Muslim can go and study for five years, 10 years in Syria or in, in Cairo and then come back and people will sort of give them a huge amount of respect for it. So it can go both ways. We, we haven't got much time left in the session, but um, um, I just wanted to read out what the last thing, what advice and encouragement would you give to younger Muslim writers to tell their own stories? Oh yeah, this is something I wanted to touch on actually, because um, when Nadim approached me to be part of this festival, he talked about representation and how, you know, as Muslims, I mean, I've been a writer all my life, but um, I also sometimes run workshops. And I think it's really important to um, to encourage people to write or whatever form of expression that it feels most natural to them, partly because it's a desahogo, they call it in Spanish. It's like an undrowning. You know, if, if you have something that helps you to kind of breathe and not feel suffocated, then that's a really beautiful thing. It's going to really benefit your mental health and even, your, I don't know, your physical health. It could have, it could benefit you in lots of different ways. But also to see yourself reflected in the culture and in media is very important. And um, I wanted to just share this uh, quote that I read of Junot Diaz, who said that um, when people don't see themselves reflected in media, they start to feel like a vampire because vampires aren't visible in the mirror. They don't have a reflection. So you start to feel like a monster if you don't see yourself reflected. And that's, I think some, that's a way that I think that, um, that Muslim writers need to just really kind of just do it. There's always going to be some resistance, but you just got to do it and try and get it out there. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for giving us um, that. Inc- well, our, the youth amongst, amongst us, uh, including myself, um, <laughs> I've recently taken up the practice of journaling. And I think you're right in that if you start doing it, there are, personal benefits to it but seeing yourself seeing yourself in in the media as a young child I didn't have any um you know Muslim Pakistani female um role models I mean it was Nancy Drew that I read right (laughs) you know but it's so as a parent of a daughter um that's quite young um you know it's great to see the different the diversity um, being a parent in 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 um, in literary circles and including um, you know the media as well in general, mm. um, it's been lovely having you here, Medina. Thanks so much for uh, having me. Thank you so much, Joanne. Um, oh. uh, we uh, I've put on the chat box where people can purchase your book, Medina. 
And um, is there anywhere that people can get in touch with with you on um, through social media? Yeah, um, I'm fairly active on Instagram. It's um, at Medina Tenor. And uh, I have a Facebook page as well, which I think is just my full name, Medina Tenor Whiteman, if you look that up. I don't really use Twitter very much. 